Hey guys, Brandon here. We'll get you to the show in just a second. And if you want to listen to that 90s baseball pod early and ad-free, make sure to sign up at patreon.com slash that 90s baseball pod. Subscribers at any level get the show as soon as it's created, early and ad-free. Now, for our sponsors, we have eParade, which is reasonably priced, trendy kitchenware. That's E-P-A-R-E dot com. Promo code 10T90BP10. So that 90s baseball pod, T90BP, with 10 on either side. Symbol.app, that's S-I-M-B-U-L-L dot app, is the stock market for sports. If you use the promo code Bender, you get a free week of Symbol Gold. Hinterland Coffee in Minnesota is a freshly roasted coffee experience every single week. Monthly subscriptions get 10% off. Go to hinterlandmn.com. Three-star sports cards, you can find them online or in person in Bloomington on Lindale Avenue or in Little Canada on Rice Street or threestarsportscards.com. And finally, Humility Chains. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes stylish, affordable chains and necklaces and bracelets that go, uh, the proceeds go directly to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer. So a portion, again, of those proceeds go to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer cancer more than 20 styles of chains and bracelets are available they're affordable they look great i'm wearing mine right now i highly recommend them it's humility chains on etsy so look up etsy and then search for humility chains and now on to your show Hey, what's up? We are very excited to be bringing you another edition of That 90s Baseball Pod powered by Access Twins. I'm your host, Brandon Warren, and you can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore W-A-R-N-E. Across the screen from me is Mr. Greg Olson. Greg, how are we doing today? I'm good, Brandon. I got, uh, we're excited. Got our yes. first Hall of Famer. Yes, uh, <laughs> we have, we have uh, one of the top three managers of the Twins that I ever covered, and it's Mr. Paul Molitor. How are we doing? Gentlemen, thanks for having me on today, and uh, I'm glad to be on that short list in some way, so that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, that's probably not high on the list of career accolades. I only covered three managers, but um, yeah, we're very excited to have you on the program, and uh, we got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time. Um, how are things for you? What are you up to? Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Uh, you know, I, I'm staying busy. I uh, uh, It's been a tough winter up here in Minnesota, obviously, mm-hmm. but you know, I still got two teenagers that I have to deal with. My uh, freshman uh, son is involved with basketball this winter, so I've been checking out a lot of those games. And I'm still hoping to be involved with the game uh, whenever we get back on the field in some capacity. You know, the Twins were 
nice enough to bring me back last year. I was able to spend some time in some of the affiliates throughout the course of the summer. And we'll see uh, if something like that lies in store as we move forward. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, I, uh, I like that they moved some of the operations. Wichita is a little closer than Pensacola. It's a little closer than Chattanooga. Um, yeah. Did you spend much time in Wichita? I got down there for a couple, a uh, couple stints, beautiful yeah. ballpark. Um, they, you know, they call them the wind surge appropriately because it's hot <laughs> and it's blowing. And thankfully for the hitters, most time it's blowing out, but I had a couple of good trips down there. Uh, got to Cedar Rapids. Of course I got over to St. Paul for maybe right. a dozen games or so roughly, right. but it is set up nicely. And I like the change they made in switching the uh, low A and high A between Yep. Florida and uh, the Midwest League. It makes a lot more sense to have the higher league up here in the Midwest. Yeah. I, before I let Greg chime in here, what do you think of that affiliation between St. Paul and, and the Twins? Because obviously it, people talked about it and it never seemed that likely because the adding and subtracting minor league teams is complicated. Right. But again, obviously you have St. Paul in your blood, your twin and all that. What did you think of sure. the switch in affiliation? Well, you know, on the, on the surface, it just makes so much sense. Um, just the accessibility of players when they get called up. Again, um, the facility's nice. I think they're going to upgrade some of the uh, behind-the-scenes things, locker rooms and things like that as they continue their relationship. But, you know, the Saints have such a history up here in Minnesota, and mm -hmm. they still had a pretty good following. I think everyone's still um, at AAA getting used to some of the gimmicky things that the Saints do. <laughs> Make their product uh, entertaining, but overall, um, you know, with Guardi at the helm over there, they had a nice season, and I think it's going to bode well for the Twins in that relationship moving forward. Yeah, it feels like somewhere uh, Boston gets that long term with Pawtucket. You got the Cubs with Iowa. It, it seems like something that can uh, can really stick. Greg, what you got? No, I'm just uh, I'm listening. I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> thankful that you're still involved in the game, Paul, because it seems like uh, the game's kind of moving away from the old guys staying well, around and, and yeah. uh, passing along their knowledge. And you is arguably one of the greatest hitters of all time. I mean, ninth on ninth on the hits list, which is unbelievable. Um, yeah. uh, you know, without me, you'd probably be about 10th or 11th. <laughs> I just want, yeah. I'm curious what, I hope that you're involved in the hitting aspect because you were about the flattest plane swing long through the zone, impossible to get out. I, I, are you still involved in the hitting aspect? Um, yeah, I, I was last year in, in some degree. You know, my role changed a little bit from back in the day when I was strictly a coordinator fine, uh, and, you know, focusing on base running and defensive infield play. Um, I, have more, I had more freedom last year to kind of just interject wherever <laughs> I felt appropriate. So I did spend a lot of time in the cages watching guys, making suggestions, Interesting to have conversations with younger players now and what they feel they need to do to increase their chances of climbing the ladder. Um, you know, they practice hitting differently now. We all know so much more emphasis on, um, you know, launch angle and, and how hard you hit the ball. And um, I, some of it makes sense to me. In some ways, I still think that, like you mentioned, Greg, there's, there needs to be a blend. Um, the one thing that I, I don't like about how we develop hitters now is there's not a lot of efficiency involved. It's just more about the major damage, willingness to give up, 
at bats in, in some ways, just for that one chance, you might get a pitch that you could elevate and, and maybe hit in the gap or over the fence. Um, I still know just managing not that long ago, you know, you want to have guys that can take those at bats and, and there, there's a, there's an arc to being able to get a single. And sometimes that's going to be valuable in winning and losing as well. Totally agree. Um, I wanted to get to, I mean, you got, you got drafted in 74 by the Cardinals, I believe as a pitcher. Uh, I, not, not necessarily. I, I was, I was a pretty good two-way player in baseball. I, I had a nice <laughs> high school career like a lot of guys do. Um, but I, I think the Cardinals were focused on potentially having me be an offensive player. Um, and as it turned out, you know, I, I, I really considered starting my professional career way back there and coming out of high school, but uh, ended up getting a, a, an opportunity to go to the University of Minnesota on a scholarship and play for that program. And being a 26th round pick coming out of high school, I didn't have a lot of leverage. So I went the college route and it turned out to be a good decision in the long run. I got, I got the education background as well as having a chance to go in a much higher position um, three years later. No. You, you mentioned being a manager not that long ago. I got to ask you, what was the Eduardo Escobar experience like? Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> not sure what the basis of that is, but I... No, he's my I, guy. I love him. Yeah, you know, Esco, man, he just... Uh, he, kept finding a, he kept finding a way to be a big-time player for me. And mm -hmm. the hard part was that every year I'd go to spring training out of four years I managed it, I have to tell him that as of now, he didn't really have a starting role. But just to trust me that I would get him opportunities to play. And then every year he'd end up getting plenty of at-bats, plenty of games, move him around. Um, his versatility, man, he really has developed into a pretty outstanding offensive player the last mm -hmm. few years, our Arizona and some of the things he did. Now he's got a new home this year. Um, but, yeah, and not to mention just his personality. Very unselfish, knows how to laugh, make other people laugh. Um, he might not remember your name from one day to the next, but, uh, he was a great, he was a great guy to have in that clubhouse. Yeah. I had to do that as a, a brief aside because he's, uh, he's one of my all time favorites. I was doing a list of my favorite people to talk to in the game over the years that I covered you guys. And let me just say, he's very high on the list. Um, you did talk about though, Minnesota, um, what's your level of involvement with Minnesota right now in baseball? Are you, are you doing much? Are you hanging around there at all? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I was really glad that, you know, getting through the pandemic and everything, no minor leagues that one year, and um, it kind of slowed my ability to return in any capacity with the Twins. Um, but, we, you know, through a lot of discussions last winter, you know, I was able to uh, come to a, a place where they were happy to bring me on board, and we found a nice little niche and, and, and gave me a chance to, to be around the game, which I still enjoy doing, mm -hmm. um, you know, on a personal level, you know, having a, having a son that like, likes the game, loves, loves to play. I'm able to spend time around his team and help out some of the coaching with, with his team when I get a chance to do that too. And I, I, I like the amateur baseball side of thing when mm -hmm. the game's still relatively pure. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, baseball still a big part of my life and, and hopefully it will be for a long time. And the Gophers too, are you involved with them at all? Appreciate you mentioning that. You know, the coach at the University of Minnesota, Greg, is an old teammate of mine. He's been there for, I don't know, almost 40 years now, whatever it is. And I, I do keep my connection to the university program, follow them, try to get down there when I get a chance to see some games. 
And, uh, you know, it's really tough to compete for these northern schools with some of the powerhouses throughout the south. And, yeah. But they find a way to stay competitive every year. And I give my friend John a lot of credit for that. Very good. No, I appreciate you staying in the game, man. You, uh, your skill level and your knowledge are bar none. And I uh, just hate to – would hate to see you not being around and helping and, yeah. and coaching oh. – I, I, I'll follow up on what you said earlier too, Greg, you know, I mean, um, not, not just speaking of myself, but in general, um, I, I just think that we do need to maybe strike a little bit better balance. We, we've certainly learned a lot about how to measure performance and win probability and all those things. And when I was managing, you know, there was such a tremendous influx in that type of data and, you know, you try to respect it and, and take it into your consideration uh, but as everybody knows, you're still doing with dealing with human beings and people that you can trust in certain situations just because of their uh, their makeup and, and, and different things like that. And so I, I do think we need to balance the human side with the analytical side, as well as the fact that there was a lot of things that players did in the game in previous decades or previous generations that in some ways still can enhance the game that we're trying to play today and finding ways to win. And my other concern along those lines is that as, as analytics have become more of the, of the, of the guide that clubs use, it, it's, it's become a little bit less of an entertaining game in my mind. And, and it's just as far as action is not as frequent, base running is not as prevalent as far as one of the ingredients that makes a team potentially dangerous in a postseason. We, we've just kind of changed not only how we play it, but therefore it makes it a different game to observe for the fans. I always found it I, – I, I do find it fascinating. We get to the playoffs and all of a sudden baseball comes back. You know, you see guys yeah. two-strike approaches going, you know, Bellinger going the other way, hitting through the shift. And right. you know, now all of a sudden the stolen base comes back and, and I'm going, okay, so when the game's at the most heightened time, right. we go back to the way baseball was. But for 162 games, yeah, we're, we're, you know, it's not worth stealing bases and – you having over 500 stolen bases. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think that's a very valid observation. I do think that the postseason does bring back some of those things that we lose throughout the course of the 162 game schedule. Um, you know, whether it's hitting through the shift or, you know, guys trying to bunt against the shift, looking for opportunities to pick up 90 feet, you know, the stolen base, you know, we never really had a chance to measure it all that much in terms of how many more runs it created, depending on your success rate. But we've obviously shifted to where it's not so much risk reward with stolen bases or other aggressive base running plays. It's it's more about the risk. They, they forget about the reward. You know, it's just we got 27 outs and we want to use them all in the batter's box as, as best as we can. And so they really try to minimize taking away any outs in base running situations. I, I still think it should play a part. Obviously you got to play smart as, as the home runs have increased. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of teams say that, you know, the guy on first has a good a chance to score in today's game as a guy in second, just because of the increase in the doubles and the home runs. Uh, you guys talking about stolen bases. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up a guy you managed and his recent big contract extension. Um, what have you seen? What do you think about Byron Buxton these days? Because I tell you what, he's looking like if he can stay healthy, a bona fide superstar. And yet there is that balance too of 
if you have him on the bases, you want to take that extra base, but you don't want to lose him on the bases, all that. Um, you know, just w- when you watch him play now, how do you feel as far as how his evolution has gone? Because he really is sure. a treat from my point of view. Yeah, you know, I, I can get uh, long-winded in an answer, <laughs> Byron. I mean, you know, having a chance to uh, be a part of the group of people that try to help develop him through our system and then see him, you know, finally get to the major leagues and excel. Um, we all know the challenge for Byron has been able to find ways to stay on the field. Um, I was one of the, you know, many Twins fans that was tremendously elated that they found a way to compromise and keep him around here. It was one of those situations, I think Byron would acknowledge that very rarely has a guy, you know, reached his free agent status, not had a real long resume in terms of games played, and just he still had a tremendous amount of leverage, which speaks to his, you know, just his high-end ability to impact the game in so many ways. So um, one of my favorite people, you know, just always respectful, um, and I, I just – could be pulling for a guy more than I pull for him. And really he's going to be the cornerstone of the twins getting yeah. back in a competitive situation. And I, I think you might've heard me share the story. I, I don't talk to players a lot that I either coach or manage much about my career, but right. last summer when I did talk to Byron and I felt that, you know, another bout with not playing and injuries, I, I did share with him about how many times personally that I, I, I missed games as a younger player and that, uh, for whatever reason, I had really, really good health in my 30s and not so good in my <laughs> 20s just to try to plant a positive seed for him that it could be at any point where this thing turns around and all of a sudden you find yourself playing 150 to 150 games every year. Now, as someone who's worked in player development in some form or fashion with the Twins all over the place, uh, it feels like they kind of have an affinity for those guys. I mean, I know the faces have changed in the front office, but you go back to Torrey Hunter, you get a toolsy outfielder who needed time. Aaron sure. Hicks, toolsy outfielder, needed time. Um, you know, obviously you managed Hicks for a minute there, I think. Um, or did, did you miss out on him? I can't remember. I think you had him for oh, a year. Yeah, he was there, I think, 15, maybe. Yeah, before I think I- that's right. Yeah. So, but I mean, you, you would have seen him in development, I'm sure, at some point. Um, what It just seems like the Twins have a type as far as those toolsy, fast athletes that um, they can play ball, but they're going to probably try to turn them into something more. Akil Badu, another one who comes to mind. Yeah, well, you know, not keeping Badu around last year and him having a breakout season with Detroit, those are just things that happen. Yep. But the Twins do have a nice history as far as that type of athletic player. Um, you know, you can call it, you know, five two, whatever you want to call those type of players. And I, I think that the Twins have been smart where they really haven't, overly tried to change too many things. They kind of let these guys develop. I, I think, you know, a guy like Kirby, Kirby Puckett gets to the big leagues and really hadn't shown any power whatsoever as a minor mm-hmm. player as in his rookie season and was a tremendous hitter. And the power just was a natural part of his progression um, as he got more experience at the big league level. So um, I like know, Doge. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. So, you know, we're just I – th- I think they've done a good job. I think the Twins know how to develop. They do trust their staff. They give them a lot of room to do their thing. Uh, one, one of the fun things last year for me was getting back to the Meyer Leagues here with the Twins. I got a chance to get to know some of these new staff that we brought on, some of these young guys who come from different backgrounds, and mm-hmm. um, they're making an impact, and they're definitely helping the, the organization – 
you know, mature their, their minor league system. Greg, you want to bring us back to the nineties here? Yeah. Well, I just wanted <laughs> to, I mean, your, your career is unbelievable. And, um, I was always afraid to talk to you about hitting and what you were doing because I figured you were going to get into my brain at some point. And then <laughs> I was going to cease functioning every time I saw you. Um, let's go on to the, uh, the 39 game hit streak in 87. You obviously in the zone, what was, what, what were you thinking going through? I mean, was it just that easy? Yeah. Uh, well, actually that takes us back to the pre nineties era. That's and okay. Uh, you know, I, one thing I find is that older I get, you know, it's hard to gauge how much interest people have in reminiscing back to the good old days, as we say. But, uh, you know, that was just one of those times where, uh, you know, ironically, I, I had been on the disabled list the first half of the season with uh, a hamstring tear. And I remember working with our hitting coach, Tony Muser, during the All-Star break as I was returning to health and getting ready to come back on the roster once we came out of the break. And, uh, yeah, we had, we had just worked out a lot of things. And, you know, things just started clicking right away coming out of that injury time and, and into the second half of the season. And, um, you know, I was forced, I was leading off. I, I had some speed. I could bunt. I could find ways to get on base. And before you know it, you know, the, the consecutive game thing just continued to mount it. The Brewer record where I was playing at that time, I think it was 24. And so, you know, there was a little bit of focus around that. And then I was able to get past that number and it kind of quieted till I started getting up to the thirties. And then, I don't know, it's just, um, I was really trying to focus on uh, not so much keeping the streak as live that we were, we were trying to find our ways back into the pennant race in early August. And, you know, I kept grinding out hits and we kept winning games and it was just a really, really fun chapter of my time putting on that brewery uniform. Any, uh, any particular hit game that stuck out during that streak? Uh, well, Baltimore Orioles, man, uh, <laughs> playing, playing in Memorial stadium. And because of being a leadoff man, I got a fifth at bat in the ninth inning with two outs off Tom Needenfuhr. And I, and I hit a Homer. So I think that took it like, to, I don't know. It was, 30, 31, somewhere in that range. And if I hadn't been leading off, I never would have got that fifth at bat. And then they hit a home run. I remember Ripken yelling something at me when I was running around the bases. It was, it was a good moment. Oh man. I just saw Needon Fuhrer last week down at a fantasy camp. So I'll have to, I'll have to throw that one at him. He's yeah. got a, he's got a Minnesota connection too. I think he was born in Minnesota, wasn't he? Was it really? I don't St. know. Louis if I, Park? I think it was St. Louis Park. Well, I, I, you know, no, no, he had a, he had a really nice career, but I, my he other did. memory of him is Jack Clark taking him deep in that playoff oh. game at your stadium. So yeah, uh, some of those things that you have to suffer through as well as the good, the bad as well as the good, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so on to your moving from Milwaukee to Toronto and your numbers in Toronto in 92 are just, Unbelievable, 332 average, 22 home runs, 111 RBI, 211 hits. What, I mean, did you feel like you were just surrounded with guys? I, I know facing you guys in 92, it was like, you know, pick your poison, who you're going to yeah. run into. Uh, well, you, you know, you, you did, you changed teams, you know, and I, a, few, a couple times, right? Yeah. And 
I had never done it. And, and, you know, I, I thought I was going to be one of those rare guys that had a chance to play for a long time and stay in the same city and the same organization. So when it came time for me to have to make a decision about moving, it was tough. You know, I played 15 years in Milwaukee and going to a new team. And, um, but Toronto, their front office was very welcoming. Obviously they came after me. I knew that they had a great team. They were coming off winning the year before. And, uh, you know, you just try to find a way to fit in uh, in the beginning. It took a, a while for me to get comfortable, but our team just continued to play well. Right? You know, you got Robbie Alomar, you got a Hall of Famer there, you know, Jack Morris, a Hall of Famer. And, you know, got playing with guys like Dave Stewart and Joe Carter and Devon White. And, you know, we then we, we trade for Ricky Henderson. I mean, <laughs> we, we had we had an unbelievable team and I hadn't been in the postseason uh, 11 years previous to that. So it had been a long drought for me. And so when we got back in there, found our way through the White Sox and uh, ended up, you know, playing a really talented Philadelphia team before we went on to go ahead and defend that title. That World Series was fantastic, man. I just had so much fun playing in it. I, I think my first time I played in it, I, I was young and maybe didn't appreciate it maybe as much as I should. So to get back there, as a 37-year-old veteran, you know, I, I made sure to savor every moment and try to take as many visual pictures as I could, including Joe Carter hitting that game-winning home run in game six. So Unbelievable. What, um, what was it? Well, take you back to Milwaukee for just a second. What was it like playing that close to home for that long, but, um, you know, knowing, hey, I could play for my hometown team, but that's got to be kind of a weird dynamic. Uh, it was a little bit. You know, I mean, when you get drafted, uh, obviously – there's not a lot of leverage. You kind of go where right. you're, but um, I didn't know a lot ton about their franchise. They really hadn't done a lot since the, uh, since the Brewers had come back from Seattle. Um, I did, I did know about Robin Yam because he mm -hmm. was about my age, but had already played four years in the big leagues. Wow. As far as the geographics, it, it was nice because, you know, I did have a lot of people, family, friends that could, you know, make a weekend drive down there and check out Brewer baseball. So just had some great teams down there. You know, we talked about the Hall of Famers in Toronto, Milwaukee, you know, Simmons and, and Sutton and, and Robin, uh, you know, pre pretty good, pretty good group of guys that we had in there. Very talented. But it was nice to be close to Minnesota, too. Was uh, was the adjustment culturally difficult in Toronto in addition to playing for a new team? I mean, Canada's a different bird. There's there's no denying it. But was uh, was that a big adjustment, too? Or what was what was the main part of the adjustment that took you the longest? You know, culturally, it, it wasn't huge. Obviously, you know, you, you do feel a little bit different when you get into Canada than you do playing your games in the States. But it was it was pretty easy integration for me um, over time, just getting used to, you know, for one, it, the year I went up there, we drew 4 million fans. We were the first team ever to do that. So when you do the math, you know, the average 50,000 a game for 81 games at home. It, it was a, it was an incredible environment, but there was really nothing overly culturally different. Maybe the food tastes a little different and <laughs> your, your, uh, your iced tea is unsweetened and some of that kind of stuff, but mostly, <laughs> mostly, Hey, we had we, great, great following up there, great ballpark to play in and obviously a really talented team. And pretty big shoes to fill in another Minnesota boy uh, from Winfield to you. That's a pretty impressive transition. Yeah. Um, just for a refresher for people listening, you know, Dave Winfield went up there and they, and 
won the World Series in 92, and then he left, and I went up there and filled that DH role, and then we won again. So um, I, I think it's pretty ironic how Dave and my careers had so many parallels. You know, yes. we, grew up, we grew up five blocks apart, yeah. and uh, we both kind of started our career and stayed in one place for a long time. We both went to Toronto to win our first World Series. We both came back to Minnesota to not only get our 3000 hit, but on the same date. Um, so the past that our careers took and the fact that we were, we played on the same playground in St. Paul, I, I think is pretty amazing. Unbelievable. Wow. No, that's really good stuff. Um, what else? I had something for you on the, uh, <laughs> I wanted to refresh your memory on one. We got to play with each other for about an hour and yeah, it was, wasn't very long. <laughs> no, nah, I wasn't very good. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. But, but by the way, we had TK on last week. I don't know if you knew that, Paul. Um, I bet you that went really well. Uh, he, we couldn't get him off the phone. The landline, <laughs> by the way, the landline. Yeah, landline. Probably didn't have to ask too many questions. Mm -mm. No, nope, we just got him started and it was, uh, it was great. He's uh, up and let him go. I, I got to tell you, you know, I got to know TK, obviously, when I came back here to play and I played for him for three years. He just, he, for, I always found him really refreshing in how he thinks about the game and how he learned how to, you know, handle young players. A lot of th people thought he was overly penal towards them, but he had a, he had a plan in mind for every player that he managed. Uh, In-game stuff was incredible. And I just would sit back. He didn't, he didn't meddle with me too much. You know, he just kind of let me play, but I, I kind of saw how he ran that team. And uh, I, I really feel fortunate that I've been around now for, you know, over 25 years. He's been through a lot. Obviously you have the, you know, arguably the greatest manager in Twins history with a couple of world series on his resume and very in interesting guy to listen to. I know when he does the twins games a couple times a year on the television, I make sure I tune in because I want to be able to still learn something from the man. So. Now, I, Greg, I stole your thunder about 97. Sorry about that. No, you're all right. What, uh, give me, give me a, a, a TK story because we kind of ran through it. And I told my, uh, last week, I told my first camp with you guys in 97. And I had thrown a pen or something and came walking in and had ice all over. And, and TK went walking by me and he had just got done throwing BP and he had ice almost on his whole upper body. I kind of smirked and, and uh, he, he kind of lit me up a little bit about, you know, the fuck am I laughing about? But give me a TK story. Yeah. Yes, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not the best person to ask for a story. I just, you know, a lot of it kind of melds together. But um, I don't know. I, 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 it's not even really a story. I, I know coming here, he had, he had met with me that winter and had really kind of laid out why he thought the twins were going to get back into a competitive situation. Um, and just, just his, his, his candor with that. And to be honest with you, I came back here in 96 and we finished close to 500, which was pretty amazing considering we lost Kirby Puck at that spring training. Yep. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just had the picture like everybody else, you know, him throwing BP with a cigar in his mouth and, just uh, the Zubas, uh, the Zubas going, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. It it, it was uh, it was just really a, a privilege. I, I love all my managers, and they were all different in their own ways. But that chapter of playing for TK was was pretty special. Yeah, good man. 
Really good you, man. One of my favorite stories from when you were a manager, and I know we're going back into the 2000s, was uh, I don't know if you were coaching first for a minute there or what, but one of the players asked you if you had played before. I think it might have been Carlos Santana. What? Yeah, yeah. That was one of my uh, favorite stories you ever told. So yeah, that year we, I, I was I was coaching for Gardy, and uh, you know I can't remember exactly the circumstances, but I had to go out and coach first base for a while, um, and. Yeah, there was a pitching change, and Carlos Santana was was playing first base, and uh, we got to do. I can't remember who was on base for us, but I kind of crept in there and we started conversation. And Carlos asked me, uh, we were talking about something about the game in the past, and he goes, "Did you play?" And, <laughs> and I can't remember who was on base for us. Just couldn't stop laughing. And I said, yeah, I played a little bit. And uh, I said, I, in fact, I, I, I play with your manager, Terry Francona. And he says, who? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, your manager. You know. and, and I'm telling you, um, that story spread like wildfire because every team almost that came in the rest of the year, when they get on first base, they'd ask me about if I played. And it, somehow the Carlos Santana story got around and it's funny because ever since that I really like that guy and he's he's really had a nice career but he's always been apologetic about it I think you don't need to apologize I mean you know you we all come and go at some point so but yeah it was it's everybody needs a little humble pie once in a while so that was good for me yeah I wanted you guys <laughs> to sign him back in the day and it never really panned out but I love guys that can get on base like that uh sorry Greg I'm, I'm stealing your thunder about the 90s here no, you're, it, that's all good. Um, like I said, we never, I never talked to you about hitting because it just, you know, I figured I was going to be bouncing around and, and uh, never got a chance to just discuss your, your theories on hitting. You, you yeah. hit, you know, 225 sure. runs. And, but when I'm facing you, you were always a threat. You know, I, I was well aware that you, you could take me out. When, when you did go deep, were you, I mean, were you looking in, you just yeah. get mistakes? What, I mean, well, I never wanted to go in on you is what I'm trying to say. I, well, first I'll say, you know, don't, I, I appreciate your, your humility towards your own career, but it, you know, not a lot of people were too happy when they had to have a bat against you, man. You had a lot of <laughs> weapons. So um, I, I think generally, you know, you kind of develop a hitting philosophy without even really having to verbalize it. It's just kind of things that you learn and you adjust along the way. I found out early on when I was playing that, you know, I got, I got tired of, of chasing hard breaking stuff, whether it was splits or sliders with two strikes and hitting a, a little bit more out of a panic mode. And I, I just knew that I had to figure out a way to see the ball a little bit longer. And I started incorporating, you know, as little movement as possible, took my stride away and just really try to give myself an extra couple of clicks to see the pitch and recognize it. And, um, you know, it started to work and I became so comfortable with that approach that I ended up, you know, incorporating into my entire hitting, whether it was first pitch or 0-2. I just, I just, you know, maybe gave up a little power by doing that, but I think it allowed me to be more consistent. And the other thing I think that I try to pass on with these guys, you know, everyone today is trying to find ways to hit doubles and homers. And I don't know if there's so much sitting on pitches that they just kind of have zones that they, they don't change their swing much, no matter what the pitch is. But I think you have to learn, you know, I always looked at counts um, in connection to percentages. Uh, you know, when you have favorable counts, your percentages to be able to look for pitches goes up because you, 
the consequence isn't going to directly be an out. And I think people that can execute a little bit more according to the count and understanding what they're trying to do is a big part of it. But yeah, as far as my philosophy, I don't really try to teach other people about it. Guys that do strike out a lot and don't have a lot of power, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we try to short them up. And part of that is maybe minimizing whatever movement that they have before they go ahead and fire their trigger. So uh, go ahead, Brandon. Oh, so I don't, if you're going to stay on this, I don't want to take it away from you. No, I just always felt like I was going into your strength by pitching you away. Yeah. You know, you know last thing I'll say, I kind of didn't answer that. The the middle end thing, I, I didn't try to, I didn't, I didn't have a big power zone. You know, I, I, I didn't hit a lot of homers, but I, I mixed them in here and there. Uh, mostly because I wasn't trying to think about hitting a homer as today's players. I think they think about it almost every at bat, the majority. So, but I did have, you know, if I was looking middle in and I could handle velocity in there, but I, it just wasn't my overall approach uh, for the most part. I like to look out and over and be able to react in there. Go ahead, Brandon. When I was watching some World Series film, I want to say, I don't remember what year it was. Uh, I think you had done some videos breaking down pitchers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think it was for CBS. How did that all come together? Uh, I think it was actually the twins year, their first 87. Yeah. 87. Yeah. Because, uh, I, you know, I had gotten a little bit of notoriety because that, that hitting streak picked up a little steam and that was in the second half of 87. And so, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I think it was ABC because I, I know that, um, Al, oh, yeah, Michaels, ABC. Al Michaels was in there and, and, uh, you know, they just, uh, I think Tony Gwynn did some stuff for the National League and I did some stuff for the American League and they just asked us to talk about, you know, basically they give you a little camera shot and you'd break down a picture, talk about his repertoire and what made him good or what made him vulnerable and you try to, you know, give a little commentary in that regard. It was, it was good experience for me. Yeah. I, the, the one thing that I got the most uh, grief was that, that you know, I, I picked the Twins to lose in the first series against the Tigers, I think it was, so um, I, I had to kind of live that down for a while, but it was, it was, it was doing that little bit of commentary. Well, they won 29 road games that year. I don't think it was that big of a, a deal for you to pick against them. That was a, an against all odds twins team. Got hot at the right time. That's for sure. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Grow, um, hey, growing up, who, who was your favorite player? We got, we had that asked on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. Great. I grew up right here in the Twin Cities, St. Paul side of the river here. And um, I, I followed the Twins as much as any kid could follow a major league team at that age, considering I think only about 50 games a year were televised. But Harmon Killebrew was my guy. I mean, we had some great teams. The Twins had a, a World Series appearance in 65, um, got shut out by Koufax in game seven. But, um, yeah, and, and, and Harmon just was somebody that was – you tried to emulate in your – backyard you know i think i had a number three t-shirt and i always tell people i said how many people boyhood heroes turn out to be friends in adulthood and that's about as good as it gets and i i picked that i picked a really good guy to to look up to because you know one of the ultimate gentlemen i ever met in the game i called that greg i called it when we were talking off the air i said it's going to be harm killer for sure yeah good no. I could tell you a lot of the players on that team, whether it was a you know Tony Oliva or Bob Allison, Earl Batty, Camilo Pasquale, Jim Cott. I mean, Zoilo. those were, yeah, MVP Zoilo yep. in 
five. So Mudcat. Oh yeah. No, I, I mean I, I got to meet Harmon once. I think at a card show, and, and like you said, one of the nicest, most pleasant yeah. people I've ever been around, and and it was um, it was just an absolute pleasure. Very genuine, no doubt about it. How, so, at what point in your career did you think playing in Minnesota was realistic? Because I mean, we all know the limitations they were dealing with budget wise. Probably yeah. in your peak, you would have priced out of that, but. Um, when did it become reality? And then what was that process in the winter of 95, 96 like for you uh, from a, from a recruitment standpoint? Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're back in your mind when you play that, you know, you had your favorite team as a kid and you wanted if that would ever fall into place. The longer I played Milwaukee, the more I thought it was unlikely just because I, like I said earlier, I thought I was going to be there forever. Um, I lost one opportunity. My first time going through free agency was when the collusion was a part of the game and a lot of, not too many players were changing teams. And so that chapter kind of came and went. I stayed in Milwaukee, which I was very fortunate to do. And then my first free agency period where I had a chance to move was uh, between 92 and 93. And the twins were in position to either, I was a fit for them at that time. So when I went to Toronto, I, I figured pretty much that was going to be the end of any hopes of someday, you know, putting on the twins uniform, but I had, had some good years and I was still playing pretty well as I got close to 40. I, I never would have guessed that my first year as a twin would be the year that I turned 40. I mean, that, that just wasn't part of how I, I thought about it, but better late than never, you know, I've got a chance to come home all the people that traveled around for, you know, almost two decades watching me play and I could just hop in the car and come down to the Metrodome. And uh, it was good, you know, and I didn't come here just because of that. I really thought the team was going to have a chance to be competitive. I was really looking forward to playing for TK. I was really looking forward to having Kirby Puckett as a teammate. Obviously coming home was a positive in that decision as well. But uh, yeah, I got a chance to put to, to play for them for three years and also, start the foundation, which has been a relationship now that has spanned over a couple of decades. Yeah. And, and you guys won 78 games that year and without Kirby, uh, what was the ripple effect like though? You know, he comes up in spring training and he can't see, you know, the, the dots or whatever. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, he got hit by Denny Martinez and last year, but I think it was the opposite side. Uh, yeah. the, the, the mushroom cloud that came out of that, I have to imagine was pretty immense. What was that like to live that uh, up close and up front? Well, I, I think, you know, for the Twins fans and certainly his teammates, uh, you know, your, your, your first thought isn't how it's going to affect the team. Your first thought is, you know, you're empathizing with Kirby, right? I mean, you know, you always hear coaches and people say, you know, always play every game like it's your last because you never know what's going to happen. And he literally was that guy where the day before, you know, raking he just was having a good spring early on and then literally one day you wake up and, and you're never going to play the game again so um it was tough it was tough it was emotional for everybody to watch him do that and yet he found a way to stay positive I never really saw any time where he just said you know that he got screwed or I can't believe this happened he he stayed optimistic because there was hope for a while that either was going to come back or be good enough to play. Obviously that never happened, but I remember that year playing and him being around the team and, you know, having that 
patch on his eye and just, it was tough. It was tough seeing a guy as vibrant and as important to a team as that guy was to all of a sudden have it just pulled away like that. Well, and then you hit 340 plus 341. I want to say uh, what clicked for you that year? I mean, 30 or late thirties, early forties, and you're hitting 341. I mean, come on, man. I, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it was funny because I, you know, I became pretty good friends with Ron Coomer who had come over here and, uh, uh, he tells a story that, you know, I went up having, a, I ended up having a good year, right? I think I played 161 games or whatever and, and produced fairly well. And, and Coomer tells everybody that he, he sat next to me in spring training. We locked it next to each other. And I was coming off a little bit of a shoulder ding there from Toronto. And I, I couldn't hit anything in spring training. And he was telling everybody, he's calling his buddies from L.A., this, guy, this guy's done. He's got, that, he's got nothing left. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, uh, I got off to a good start. I think I hit 400 in April and, and, uh, just was able to kind of keep it going. And, you know, the fun part about that year, you know, obviously we didn't win as much as I was hoping, but I had, I'll always remember because, uh, someone told me you need 211 hits to get to 3000. And I'm thinking, well, 40 years old, it's probably not going to happen this year. You know, put that on the back burner. It was never really a ultimate quest of mine to get to that number, but, I, I, I couldn't have I couldn't have imagined that I, in my first year back in Minnesota that I'd, I'd have the health TK give me to put me in the lineup every day that I would I would get to that milestone on that given year. So, yeah, it was it was a good year. Not a lot of power, had a lot of opportunities. You know, Chuck Knobloch had an unbelievable year. Yes, he did. Yeah. You know, stealing bases. You know, I think he hit 342. You know, mm-hmm. Rick Becker had a really good year. Marty Cardova had a really good year. I think we were we were you know very competitive with run scored in the league, and that was out and that was after losing our best player in spring training. Not bad, yeah. I think and I think Kirby had hits off Maddox and somebody else the days before, and that was kind of the raw part of it. Was he was he was really he, swinging it good too. He was rolling. We we were, you know, I'd only been around him. I don't know how was it maybe three weeks into spring training, yeah. and you know you kind of everybody knows Kirby, but you know, knowing him from the other side and then knowing him in your own locker room, I, I just was just as much as I tried to imagine what it was be like in his energy. I mean, coming in there every morning with those bags, of egg McMuffins and uh, just immediate analysis presence by calling somebody out in some fashion. It was, it was a spectacular experience. And I know that we are just so excited about what that year might bring before everything came down for him. Oh man. Yeah, he was one of my favorites as a opposing opposing players, just you know, he looked like <laughs> it was it was just fun, you know. Probably not as a pitcher though. No, I mean you couldn't throw <laughs> you know, he was Vladimir Guerrero before Vladdy was Vlad, you know. I mean yeah. you couldn't throw the ball in the air and not, you know, and not having a chance to get hit really hard. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I tell you one thing, when I played against him, I hated playing third base on the turf. <laughs> you know, I mean. He could, he could, he could hit rockets, you know, him, Winfield, those kind of guys. It just it made this position scary. And I don't know why you, Greg, but I, I remember like when I was on Milwaukee and, and Kirby would come out to stretch and we'd, we, you know, or get ready for, he'd go up to all of our pitchers, you know, and he, and he wouldn't call them by their first name. He called them all Mr. And he said, man, I hope you don't get in the game tonight. I got no chance against you. And just <laughs> totally setting up all these guys, you know, they're all, and then, you know, he'd go out there and he'd make everybody. I, you know, I had a chance to be watch one of his greatest games in his history. I was just going to ask you about that. 87, yeah. right? 
I, he went six for six with two doubles and two homers, man. I, I, I should have, you know, had a toll booth for him coming around third because it was, it was an all day event. And I, and what I remember is his last hit was, uh, if I, I'm maybe I'm pretty sure I'm right with Dan Plesak. I think was, you're right. Nasty. No, Dan Plesak, he was something. And it was in the shadows at County Stadium, which were terrible late in the afternoon. And he hits uh, he hits a homer out to right center. So that was, it was it was one one of those games you don't see very often. Glad I had a chance. I thought it was just me. Puckett came up to me and was talking to me, and you know, and getting to know him. And I was like, this is really cool. I'm talking to Kirby Puckett sitting around the cage. Now he's just picking my brain. And oh uh, man, uh, he had alter- he had ulterior motives. Just so you know. You know. <laughs> Did you have a favorite defensive position? I know you DH for a long period, but uh, it doesn't have to be the one you were best at. Was there a spot where you were like, yeah, man, I love playing here the most? Well, I think you'd have a tough time finding one I was best at. I, I, I love defense and I worked, but I just, I, I wasn't as polished as some of the good defenders in the game. You know, I, I started at short, I moved to second, I played the outfield for a year. And then when back in Milwaukee, Sal Bando and Don Money both, kind of were out of, out of the game and they needed a third baseman and they brought me back into play. And I, and I had never played it at any level and it was a learning experience, but the fact that I, I think I ended up playing there about 10 years um, in hindsight, my favorite position, I thought it was super challenging, you know, the cat and mouse game playing with the hitter, not that Bunnings are part of the game anymore. And just um, understanding communication with your shortstop, Robin and I, you know, he would have little verbal cues for me as, as to when he was going to kind of, you know, lean towards a hold and I lean towards a line, just playing that position um, became really fun. And I think of all the places I've played, that was, that was my favorite. How much, um, how much prep work did you do at, for the plate, you know, um, studying pitchers, going through yeah. film? Uh, you know, it's test my recollection a bit, but when I first came up, you had, you had your hitters meetings where you would talk about the other pitchers. We didn't have a ton of information like they have today over time during when I, my playing days, it got a little bit better, but it was more of just about, you know, percentage of fastballs, first pitch, you know, scoring, um, uh, men in scoring position that they change their patterns, things like that. I think most of the prep work I did was my own, was trusted my own intuition and recollection. I did use some of that stuff, but I, you know, and not, not from a boastful way, but if a pitcher throws, you know, 70% fastball first pitch and 30% off speed, if you're like hitting third in the lineup, you're probably going to get the smaller number of those two percentages. I mean, it's so you kind of had to learn to judge whatever information you had according to you know either what kind of hitter you were or you know obviously they're going to throw the better hitters maybe a little bit more variety or change their their most general pattern so you kind of have to learn that but I, I the prep work was mostly I tried to I tried to take my approach that I was going to have against that night's starting pitcher into my batting practice um, so I would change a little bit how I would prepare given what I thought was going to be my best chance to get some hits in that particular game. Go ahead, no, I, I don't want to steal anything from Greg here. I got two more if you guys both have time for that, in addition to whatever Greg's got. Yeah, go. Doing okay on time? Yeah, uh, I got a couple minutes. Okay, Brett Bow, a friend of mine, wants to know, Paul, 
favorite old ballpark to play in um one that may not be open anymore uh i always thought you know fenway's still open and it's it was it was my favorite i mean some of the older parks that aren't there anymore, you know, they had maybe had some interesting aspects to make it enjoyable to play in for one, it's a big league stadium, but right. uh, I think as a kid, you know, Fenway, whether it was on television or just the way they build up the green monster and all those kind of things made it, made it special uh, to play in. And when I had a chance to experience it at the big league level, um, just, you know, fans are on top of you. There there's, it's definitely not um, symmetric. I mean, you got different dimensions. You got different things that could happen. You got the you know, triangle out in right center, the short pole in right, the big wall in left. Um, yeah, that that was by by far my my most favorite park of playing on the road. I love it. And then uh, the last one I have, and we'll see if Greg's got one more too. Take us through managing Joe Mauer because. Uh, you know, from my point of view, we didn't get a lot from Joe. He'd give us the answers. He'd ask answer the questions, but he was a uh, it's pretty tight-lipped, whether it was personality or professionalism or just a competitive advantage. But what was it like being the the skipper when when Joe Maurer was on the team? Uh, I I'm very grateful. I had a chance to manage him, um, Greg. I you know Joe and I went to the same high school in St. Paul, and so my my old teammate was Joe's high school coach. So I, I had a, I saw Joe play in high school. Um, I knew Joe forever. And I, I was part of the development team when he was coming through the system. So, you know, watching him kind of get his career going uh, while Gardy was managing and then have a chance to kind of be there for the tail end of it. Um, he, did, he didn't need a lot of managing. Most conversations were about trying to keep him, uh, you know, being transparent about what, how we could get the most out of him um, as far as keeping him fresh and all those kind of things. I think one thing people underestimate with Joe because of his quiet demeanor and um, composure when he's asked questions, win, lose, good, good game, bad game, is just how competitive he was. Because if you just watch him and his mannerisms, and it, it doesn't really come out that way. Mm-hmm. But deep inside, you know, ultra. And I think that he was shortchanged on that particular part of his makeup, but, um, yeah, it was great. You know, he was, he was a little bit different player at the end. Um, yeah. you know, he had a couple of years there, MVP year, short little power, the old Metrodome, but still, if I needed a hit and I tried to put him in positions in the lineup where I, I thought he could opportunities to be, to where getting a base hit might mean the difference of scoring and not scoring and more times than not, it was a good choice for me to put him in those roles. And it must've been cool that last game where he caught that last pitch from Matt Belisle. Yeah. I wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually, uh, uh, Derek Shelton, who was my bench coach, you know, um, came to me and said that some of the people were talking about the possibility of Joe coming out there for, you know, put the gear on. And I, you know, obviously we got Joe involved and we tried to figure out how to make it work. I didn't know how it was going to play to the fans or the, I, I got, I knew that he wasn't actually going to catch catch, but mm-hmm. uh, and it was that going to make it seem weird, but everyone, you know, was, the consensus was uh, that this is what we were going to do. And it was a moment, man. I was standing up at my top step in my usual perch and just to watch people respond when he came walking out of that dugout 
you know, that, there's more than a few people that, you know, shed a tear in that particular moment. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was just very, you know, very fitting way for Joe to, uh, to end his uh, remarkable career that someday will hopefully end him up in Cooperstown. Yeah. I still get chills thinking about it. Greg, what do you got? I got one last one for you. I mean, unbelievable career, Paul. What, uh, what's the one thing that you're proudest of? Man, uh, I don't, you know, gosh, uh, I think I've probably been asked that and I wouldn't be surprised if I've given different answers. I, th I think being able to play at the highest level until I was 42, that's one thing. It takes a heck of a lot of work to play the game when you're young and your body's rejuvenates fairly easily. It's a, a whole nother thing when you get to be into your early 40s. And, and I think that combined with, you know, I, we mentioned it a little bit earlier with, with Byron Buxton, you know, I, I, whatever it was, 13 times a disabled list. There's a lot of times where you kind of hope that you're going to, you know, find good health and good production in the game. And I think the fact that I was able to kind of persevere through uh, some of those challenges and still go on and play as long as I did. Um, so I, I think those are some of the things. Obviously, you know, winning a World Series and all those things, they're all, they're all fantastic. Being in the Hall of Fame, I mean, that's – I don't know how many people play to go to get to the Hall of Fame. It's just kind of something that happens. But I, I think playing, playing long and – overcoming a lot of adversity were, were probably a couple of things that I would, that I would point to. So. Well, I, I honestly, it was, it was a pleasure playing against you. Um, didn't enjoy the confrontations at the plate all the time, but. Uh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. That's what we were all made to do. We I think he was that. two for 13 too. So what? Yeah. Oh, cool. See? Oh, I told I, t I told Greg in a text the other day. He said something about didn't like facing me, and I said if I I don't have a great memory, but I know that the results weren't particularly good on my side. So two for thirteen with a punch out, no walks. Uh, you know, I, I I laughed the 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 one time you know after I left Minnesota, I went to Kansas City, and we were sitting there and we were playing in the Metrodome, and I'm trying to go in at the at the hands and left it. I got it up a little bit, but. You were diving out across the plate. Now you ended up buckling back and you came walking up the next day and you were like going, that was on me. I was so diving across the plate, <laughs> you know, and then you went walking off. And I think I was sitting with Mark Gubazar or something, you know, during stretch. And I went, he is so in my head right now. I was, <laughs> I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do tonight. Now I'm like going, do I go back in or does he know that I'm going there? Or did I'm like, oh, I'm just absolutely, he is so deep in my head. That's funny. Good oh, story. Man. Good old yeah. Mark too, man. Yeah, he was uh, one of our guests before. Well, you know, my, my short story there is that I unfortunately I broke his leg with a line drive in the Metrodome. You mentioned that too. Yeah, yeah. And there was you supposed to be, be might, traded that day. There might have been about 800 people at that game. So the sound that that thing made when it hit oh. his it kind of reverberated through the whole Metrodome. That was that was a that was a bad moment. So yeah, he was he was going to be traded after that game. He was. That's what he I told did. us. Yeah, he was going to be traded. I think to the Yankees. Yeah. But uh, we won't keep you any longer, Paul. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did. Same to you, Greg. Uh, yeah. Paul, hopefully we can get you on another time because uh, there's a whole notepad of stuff I didn't get to. Sure. But thank you so much for not only this today, but uh, the great relationship that you were that that we had in 2015 and on. Uh, I appreciate sure. everything you did as a manager. Uh, thank you so much.
Thank you guys for having me, man. It's always good to talk the game. You guys do well. Yes, you too. All right, so for Paul Molitor, Greg Olson, this is Brandon Warren signing off saying thank you so much for checking out that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. We'll catch you next week. And we may have a Hall of Famer coming soon. Catch us later. Peace.